15-year-old Mary Ann Birmingham is found dead in her Aqualuit home by her sister in 1986. She was left alone while her mother and sister were in Montreal with her little brother, who was being treated for leukemia. Mary thought she was safer alone than with family members, but it turns out she left herself vulnerable for a predator. This is Cold Canada, Episode 12, Murder Up North. This episode contains graphic description of a crime against a minor and sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. Mary Birmingham was described as a bright, bubbly, and intelligent 15-year-old girl living in the remote city of Aqualuit, Nunavut, with her sisters and mother, Sarah. The city wasn't yet deemed the capital of the territory, but would be years later in 1999, when Nunavut separated from the Northwest Territories to become its own territory. At the time, Aqualuit meaning place of many fish was populated by only 2,900 people. When I say this is a remote village, I mean desolate. The city located off of Baffin Island is not accessible by highway, road, or rail. The only way in or out is by plane or boat, when the weather allows. There are no traffic lights, only stop signs to control traffic. It's the only city in Canada without stoplights and has only three gas stations serving the entire population. Even to this day, this town has the lowest population of any capital city in Canada. It's actually the only city in the entire territory. And even though the population is low, it is the largest community. The isolation and polar climate make for highly expensive imported goods as they can only be brought by boat part of the year and many families weren't exactly flush with money. Unfortunately, this causes the poverty level in the town to be quite high, which in turn causes a lot of social issues, such as abuse and addictions. According to Stats Canada, upon its separation in 1999, none of it had the highest violent crime rate among the three territories. As the province wasn't yet on its own back in 1986, there was no data on the exact crime rate. But to put it in perspective, according to a 2016 Stats Canada report, none of it had the second highest crime severity index in the country, with a severe increase in homicides. May 26, 1986 would be a life-changing day, not only for the Birmingham family, but the community at large. Mary Birmingham was staying at her family home by herself while her mother was in Montreal with her adoptive brother who was suffering with leukemia. Her older sister Barb was summoned by family services to come comfort her mother who was going to be informed her three-year-old son wasn't going to make it much longer and there wasn't anything else they could do for him. Herein lies the first issue in this story. Barb was only 17 years old at the time and was expected by social services to comfort her mother while doctors told her there wasn't anything else they could do for her son. This, in my opinion, was not right. You can't expect a young teenager to be able to handle that type of stress and be the strong one for her mother. Unfortunately, she didn't have much of a choice as Sarah's boyfriend was in jail for domestic abuse, her older sister lived in Ottawa with children that she couldn't leave, and Mary was too young, so she didn't have anybody else. Mary desperately wanted to go with her sister, 
She loved adventure and was thrilled at the thought of going to a big city like Montreal. Barb advised her she wasn't able to go. It would be better for her to stay behind. Mary escorted Barb to the airport where she says they smoked a bit of hash, had a couple laughs before Barb set off. So why exactly was Mary left alone at only 15 years old? Barb states she told social services a family friend came by every so often to check on them, even though this was a bit of a stretch. The friend only came about once a week or so. The real reason for leaving her alone is she was safer in her own home than with family. The extended family, specifically their grandparents, were addicts and abusers and would be an unhealthy environment for Mary to be in during this time, according to Barb. The decision to leave her unsupervised would be soon regretted by her sister. Upon returning from Montreal on May 26, 1986, Barb heads home, excited to tell Mary about her adventures. When she arrived home, she found the door locked, which she thought was odd. Banging on the door and calling out for Mary, she received no response. Now she was getting worried. She attempted to pry open the window with a makeup compact. Finally, she was able to get the window open. She hops into the home and starts calling out for her sister. Still no answer, she steps into the living room and finds Mary lying on the couch in a pool with a pool of blood under her. Barb continues to call out for her, half expecting her to wake up, thinking this was some kind of sick joke she was playing on her. With still no response, Barb is desperate to call 911, but with no phone in the home, she had to leave to try to find a house with one. She went door to door until she finds one open. She burst in on an older lady's home. The poor woman was sitting on the toilet when Barb entered, so she yelled out that there was an emergency and she needed to use her phone. Finally, she was able to contact police and medics and returns to the outside of her home and waits for them to arrive. The scene was taped off and Barb was taken to hospital to be treated for shock. When she was released, she was driven to her grandmother's. She had nowhere else to go. She couldn't go back home where her sister was brutally killed. It turned out Mary had been stabbed multiple times and mutilated. It wasn't specified in the media exactly how she was mutilated or if she was sexually assaulted or not. It was deemed Mary had been deceased for a few days. There wasn't a specific day or time of death released in the media. Another thing that blew my mind in regard to the story is Barb was the one who had to call her father and tell him Mary had passed. Remember this girl's only 17 years old and she had to be the one to inform him his daughter had been murdered. She was also the one to tell her older sister that Mary had, had passed. It just doesn't seem appropriate for her to have to do that. She had been traumatized enough by discovering her dead sister without any emotional support afterwards. Now, to be fair, she was offered psychiatric help at the hospital, but declined due to lack of knowledge on the subject. She thought those doctors were for crazy people, and she certainly wasn't crazy. In this community, normally if someone dies, the priest from the community is to inform the family. In this case, it was social services who end up telling Sarah her daughter had been murdered. She immediately flew home, but as soon as the funeral was over, she had to fly back to Montreal to be with her son, leaving Barb on her own once again. She was alone and afraid. She thought for sure the killer was going to come back and kill her as well. Even after this ordeal, she didn't have access to a phone to communicate with anyone, not even her mother. 
Sarah ended up spending five months total in the hospital with her son, who ultimately died from his disease at just three years old. Two children lost in the span of a year was devastating to the family. There wasn't a lot of information on the investigation or the murder itself. No specific details were ever released, but police did have a suspect in mind. In the fall of the same year, a mother and son were murdered in their home with a kitchen knife. An arrest was made the morning after. Jopi Asquick was taken in and ultimately convicted of the murder in 1988. Police suspected there may be a connection to the murders, and he was charged with Mary's death as well. The judge determined at a preliminary hearing there wasn't enough evidence to link the killings and go to a full trial. The charge was eventually dropped. Joby apologized for the murder of 21-year-old Puduku and his mother, who was 51 years old at the time, Oleo, but denies any involvement in the murder of Mary. Joby was apparently a friend of the family. He had brutally stabbed and disemboweled the mother and son, stating he had the urge to kill them. His lawyer attempted the sleepwalking defense without success. He was sentenced to life in prison and to this day hasn't received parole. With no leads and the charge falling through, the case went cold. A $10,000 reward for information was posted for months, but nothing was discovered. Fast forward to 2018. There still hasn't been any information related to the death of Mary in Birmingham, and the case still remains unsolved. Barb is now a trauma counselor and states in an interview that she is still suffering with PTSD from what she found that day 32 years prior. Barb and her mother did an interview in relation to the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls, describing their experience, which unfortunately isn't a rare one. Most of the information for this podcast was gathered through that dialogue. If you are interested in reading the whole interview, the link will be linked in the episode notes. The family continues to beg the public for information. Mike Burns of the Nunafit RCMP Major Crimes Unit also wants to be able to close this case, not only for the family, but the peace of the community at large. This is just one of the few missing and murdered Indigenous women cases that has gone unsolved. When researching this case, it was really hard to find any actual information on the crime itself, the investigation, or really any actual detail on it. I could find the storyline, but nothing really else. It seems as though they were like, okay, this girl was killed and okay, we tried to arrest this guy, but it fell through. So we'll just leave it at that. It makes me really sad even reading all of the other unsolved crimes in those areas up in the north that have gone unsolved involving missing and murdered indigenous women. It really seems like there has been no help from the police in investigating these crimes. I think it is becoming so commonplace that this is happening and there's just no extra funds to be able to help investigate the crimes, which is really, really sad. I know there's a new unit in the Yukon that launched a couple years ago that they're going to spend some time on these unsolved murders of missing Indigenous women, all the unsolved crimes. There's a task force of three people, but that's just for that territory. Something like this, which does happen in the Yukon, Northwest Territories, and none of it. There has been really nothing else that's helping the families get through all of this. There are at least 100 people that have gone missing or murdered in the past, you know, 30 years. And 
they're still unsolved. Families have no idea what happened. There are walks every year in to commemorate them. There's advocates out there for missing and murdered Indigenous women, but it still seems like it's not enough. I just don't understand why there is no information. Any other cold case, I can find quite a bit of information. Descriptions of the time of death and everything. But with this one, it was almost nothing. Here's how her sister found her body. But that was it. There was nothing on the cause of death. There was nothing on the time of death. There was just no information. And that really blows my mind. Um, I just find it really sad. I have no insight on kind of what happened to Mary because there was so little information, I can't even come up with a theory of what may have happened to her. The fact that there was a small community and no one saw anything or either was afraid to come forward or no one really did see anything because it's so so isolated, I, I don't really know. It's really hard to say what could have happened. I wish I had more information. If you have any information related to this case, please contact the RCMP's tip line toll-free at 1-844-370-7729 or Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-8477. As always, this information will be in the episode notes. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Also, go follow me at Cold Canada Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. I'd love to hit 1,000 followers by the end of the season, which is only one week away. Episodes are still being streamed on YouTube. Just search Cold Canada Podcast or go through the link in the notes. My name is Heather Curran, and this has been Cold Canada. Cold Canada.